This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Like a Sport Optics. If you, like me, adore nature and love staring at it, then I really can't recommend Like a Sport Optics enough. With a wide range of easy-to-use products all fitted with high-end optical technology, you'll definitely find something that works for you. I'm currently using the Ultravid HD binoculars and when I'm out on a walk, it feels like I've got HD TV for my eyes. And now, on with the show. Hello. <laughs> well, what a professional start of the show. I just took a sip of my drink and then dribbled and set, tried to say hello. Um, we're going with that. I'm not going to do another take. No, that's how we're going. Welcome to Into the Wild. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope you've had a lovely week. Better than my week is going. Can't even drink a vessel of water anymore. Thanks for tuning in. How have you been? Hasn't the weather taken a turn and been lovely here in London? I don't know where what it's been like where you guys are. If you're in the UK, I hope it's been nice. But it's been a lovely blue sky and 14 degrees. Because that's how rubbish the weather is in the UK, we start showing off when it's 14 degrees Celsius, but it's been lovely. So much so, here's a nature highlight for you. A few days ago, I saw my very first wild adder buzzing, mate. Absolutely buzzing. Never seen one in the wild before. I was on a walk and I saw someone taking some photos, so I spoke to them for a bit and they were like telling me a bit about the area and they said it was an, an adder hotspot and I was like, what? That's an exciting phrase. So I um, sat around and I managed to see one. Saw one, saw a male come out of a big kind of mound of logs and bracken, which must have been a hibernation uh, place. He was just basking in the sun, he moved around, he was basking a bit more. Lo- absolutely buzzing my nut off about seeing that. It was a very nice highlight. Now, moving on to today's show. Last week, when I did, when I released the episode Frogs of New Orleans with Gina Zwicky, I gave you all a bit of a warning. If you're not good at dealing with nature envy, I said just heads up because it was very, I was very jealous the whole way talking through, uh, talking with Gina about the wildlife she sees. Today is no different. I'm going to give you another warning. <laughs> if you struggle with nature envy, then go in with a little bit of caution because this week I'm talking to Neil Layden from the Bahamas. <laughs> oh God. I'm so ready to leave London. It's very hard chatting to people not in England with this podcast when you're in a national lockdown still. Neil, uh, was oh, it was such a nice chat with Neil. We had such a laugh. I think I laughed the whole way through the, the episode with him. Neil is an activist and a conservationist in the Bahamas. We spoke about the different types of wildlife you can see there, how the wildlife works with the people and what it means to the people. Um, and we also spoke about the kind of challenges wildlife and biver- di- uh, bi- uh, biodiversity <laughs> and um, the different ecosystems face in somewhere like the Bahamas because you don't really hear about it in, in the news in the UK and Europe. It doesn't really make it this far. So it was interesting to hear about the different problems that they have as well. And in particular, a certain um, project that Neil was working on, which was trying to stop some oil drilling just off the coast of the Bahamas. We spoke about how that came about, why that was a thing, and also what kind of impact that would have had on the local environment as well. So it was a really cool chat, and listeners of the show will know that I'm quite often invited to places to go and check out, uh, you know, when lockdown is done. And you'll be happy to know that that invitation happened on this episode. I've been formally invited to the Bahamas, which is a very lovely sentence to say by Neil, to come and check out the wildlife when COVID... So COVID could hurry up and f*** off. Seriously, I've got a list as long as my arm and I'm a very tall man with long arms. 
of places to go and see. So I'm buzzing for that. And my final thing I want to say before I move on to today's show, and you can listen to it and I'll, I'll be quiet in a minute, but I've had a bit of a mad seven days. Quite upsettingly and sadly, I lost my, uh, my nan uh, two days ago. Um, it was a, quite a quick process um, that she went into hospital uh, with quite a, a, a minor problem and it, it, got, it got bad quite quick and we unfortunately lost her two days ago. My nan was a bit of an unsung hero of mine. Um, she got me into nature. She taught me how to uh, embrace being outside in all weather. Um, she taught me about how to garden for wildlife and pollinators how to leave wild areas and how to repot plants, how to grow seeds and all stuff like that. She was a real kind of, I guess, the first bit of stepping stone in getting me into all things green and wild and lifting up logs and stuff. So uh, I would like to dedicate this episode to my nan, Pauline Dalton, um, who sadly passed away. Yeah, hero of mine. I didn't really know I was going to say that. I just wanted to say that. So uh, love your nans and your granddads. They're important important people in your lives. Um, so anyway, enough blabbing for me. I didn't want to get too sentimental, but enjoy the show and I'll talk to you guys at the end. Neil, welcome to Into the Wild. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing? Well, thanks for having me, Ryan. I am. Um, I'm doing pretty good. I'm just hanging out here in the Bahamas and... Um, waiting out the pandemic like everybody else i think <laughs> yeah. but you're weighing it out in the bahamas <laughs> oh my goodness when you say it like that <laughs> you make me sound like one of those one of those travel influencers who goes to bali and it's like oh my god guys move to bali it's so great the people are awesome and every time you wake up you have a mai tai that's totally their culture <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Neil, but it has snowed for the last four days in London, and that never happens. Wow! So, oh my God, I am envious of the Bahamas. I know it's where I know you live there. I know it's very normal life for you, but for Ryan, I'm like, I'm just waiting for you to invite me out to visit one day. <laughs> <laughs> More than happy to have. You. I'm doing it. Uh, already, what two minutes into the podcast, I've already said it. <laughs> listen, I'm all. I am all for it. I actually have never done the snow thing, so I can't really give you any kind of empathy. I'm just like, wow, it must be cold. <laughs> yeah, basic. yeah, it is. Show up. Yeah, <laughs> it is cold, but um, it's all right. We're, we're all fine. Well, welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Before we get started, Neil, let's start with you telling us who you are and what is it you do. Absolutely. So my name is Neil and I am from the Bahamas. I am a writer conservationist and a photographer. And what I do is I work along with activists as a part of a collective called the Bad Activist Collective. And what we do is offer a platform for activists, artists, change makers, anyone who has a platform and wants to change the world but may not have a place to do that. We take them in as kind of like an intermediate host between where they are and where they want to become. Around this time last year, I was a part of a project called Sail for Climate Action. And that was a project mm. that brought young people from Latin America and the Caribbean region together to raise awareness for the effects of climate change on the region. And so our goal was to sail from Cartagena, Colombia, to the United Nations Climate Change Conference, which would have been in uh, Bonn, Germany. But because of the pandemic, mm. we had to cut that journey short somewhere in the middle, which was in Bermuda. And yeah, ever since then, I've just been doing this virtually. We started another project, actually as a result of the Sail for Climate Action project. And that one was called Building Bridges for Climate Action. And it was essentially the same group of individuals 
but taking the work to a digital format. And we were sponsored by the German government, specifically the Ministry of Environment. And that's just been my life for the last year during the pandemic, just lots of virtual appearances and talks and lots of capacity building and working with other environmentalists around the world. So it's a real building bridge network, real kind of elevating different voices and really getting them around to show how many people are out there talking about them. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the partnerships that we have at The Collective is with groups like, and I can't even call them groups because these are individuals, much like you're an individual running your own platform. But the platform Black Girl Environmentalist has been running a, a spotlight for Black activists for the month of February because it is Black History Month in this mm. part of the world. And so I was a part of that project and I took over the Instagram of Sierra Club last week and I shared some information about that. Wow. And the founder, who we call Wawa, uh, she has a takeover today with Mark Ruffalo. And so these are individuals that are lending their platforms. I think at some point there's going to be some work with Kendall Jenner, maybe Anne Hathaway. Oh my God. Yeah, so it's, it's really these huge corporations lending their platforms to groups like the Black Girl Environmentalists and Bad Activists by Association. So that's most of what I've been doing and, and it's work that I'm very proud of because these are amazing youth activists who are raising their voices in places mm. like the United States, like the Bahamas, like Rwanda, like the UK. And it's now a network because separately, I don't think that we would have had the access or even just the know, the know with all on how to do it. Yeah, that's what an incredible thing because we, we're always saying about platforms and how they should be used mm-hmm. and how there are some massive platforms out there. And obviously, I think a lot of people are quick to criticize, criticize platforms not being used in the right way or being wasted. So what an incredible thing to arrange and have done, especially with those names you mentioned. That's I know Mark Ruffalo does a lot with um, climate, uh, the climate yeah, crisis he's, he's and stuff as well, guys. but even the people that aren't connected... Yeah, that's, a, that's an amazing piece of work. That's really motivating to hear that that's happening. So, obviously, I think, you know, I won't be wrong. I don't think you'll correct me here if I say that wildlife and nature is really, and, and the planet is really important to you. But how and when did your love for wildlife and nature begin? Yeah, it's super important to me just because of obviously where I live. It's just always been something I've attributed to one of my core tenets, I think. It's just a love for nature, love for the mm. environment, love for people and planet. If I had to pinpoint an exact origins like you know if i were a hero in the marvel universe <laughs> and I, I have to get my origin story it'll be really cool so um it definitely took place at the beach in the bahamas not so much aquaman but it was definitely me and my family <laughs> just hanging at the beach and i remember i think most people will be familiar with the brand fisher price and fisher price has this this series of of toys for kids or the toddlers and it's just very like primary color pop art looking and it's like a it was a tugboat and yeah i just remember pushing it around in the sand at the shoreline and just always being ready for that other world just to be ready to receive me i would take all of my toys and trinkets to the beach with my little sister and my mom and my aunts and cousins and that was definitely the start of my love for the ocean and my love for the environment I think by the time I was in the fourth grade, you're in the same system as I am, which is the, the primary school mm. system. That's that's like our education yeah. system. I was in the fourth grade and that was the time where we were classified as upper primary school students. And so that was when you started to take extra classes like computer science and mm. just general science classes. And maybe you started to do like a, a better level of music classes or whatever. And so I was able to do science. And I remember being in the fourth grade and 
just being so absolutely mind blown every single class. It was my favorite class. And it kind of showed in the work that I was doing because we had like a mini science fair and I got like the first place for my project, which was like a 3D model of an animal cell. And I remember being so nervous. Oh, wow. And so like, that was my start. That was my origin. <laughs> that was beha- that was how I became um, an environmental supervillain to the government. <laughs> <laughs> the film will start with you on the platform winning your first prize with your 3D animal cell. That's how it will start. That's how it starts. And it will just come up with the writing going, the beginning. <laughs> and it says, you know how the movies always say, 20 years later and then it's like boom (laughs) (laughs) amazing Um, so today we're going to be focusing on like wildlife and conservation in the Bahamas and I said to you today before I pressed record I said to you I'm so excited about this episode because it's one of the first times that we're talking generally about wildlife outside of the UK or America I mean, America is a very large space, but I mean, you know, it's the first time we're talking about something that I've got no idea about in regards to never experienced it. So first question, what kind of animals, can, this is such an ignorant question to ask first. I, I love it. It's such a funny one. Just read it as I've written it down. I'm like, oh my God, you moron. Okay. So first question, what kind of animals can we find in the Bahamas? Yeah, uh, this is, this is definitely the Jurassic world of the Caribbean. We have um, just amazing diversity we have like dogs and uh we have cats people have chickens <laughs> there, there's some sheep <laughs> wow it's so different to how the uk it's very is. old world yeah <laughs> but seriously in terms of endemic species and animals that are a bit more tropical actually the bahamas is one of the world's largest shark sanctuaries so all of our waters are oh, cool. yeah, protected sharks are protected in all of our natural waters. And so we have lots of shark species. We have tiger sharks, lemon sharks, and nurse sharks are very popular here. If you ever see like a Bahamas tourism Mm -hmm. ad, those are the sharks being advertised because they're the ones that can interact with humans without, I guess, that high probability of an incident occurring. Of course, we have flamingos, lots of beautiful flamingos, which is actually our national bird. Lots of pirate species, small birds, lots of brightly colored fish for sure. But most of the the biodiversity tends to do with the ocean, just because the Bahamas, in terms Mm. of being a geographical space, we tend to be more of a migratory space for birds. So birds are kind of always in transit, going somewhere, coming back from somewhere else. So most of the biodiversity that's notable is definitely within the ocean itself. That's really cool. I love sharks as well. Would you say it's not an uncommon thing to see sharks when you're just out on the coast of the Bahamas? Yeah, if you're, if you're in an area that is not as active in terms of beachgoers mm. or maybe ferries, then you can see sharks pretty regularly, sharks and stingrays. There's a restaurant that I like to go to and it has like an outdoor dining situation and it's a bit over the water and a few times i've been there and there have been manatees that just swam up and yeah so it, it's it's like oh that God. so it's, it's usually animals that are in transit from somewhere there's also lots of whale sightings not where i live but on other islands where there may be like deeper channels of water whales can be seen mm. and they're usually in transit coming from the arctic or with the manatees they're probably coming from around florida so Animals kind of just come and pass through the Bahamas, but we don't usually have huge pockets that are stationary here. Nice. So we spoke about sharks. What are the common species? If you were to go for a walk day today on a nature walk or something, what are the kind of common species you would find in the Bahamas? 
Okay, nature walk. Like I said, lots of birds. But birds are those kinds of animals that you kind mm. of have to be slightly specialized to differentiate between. But like, yeah, so, yeah. So for me, anything that's gray Definitely. tends to be categorized as a pigeon. And anything that's red or blue <laughs> may be a parrot. And if it's pink, it's a flamingo. Like that's my basic logic. But obviously there are people who That's my logic. Yeah, there are people who are who are um, more well versed in this and they'll be able to say, Oh, that's an osprey or that's um that's a crane or an egret or whatever. Mm. So those are the animals you can see, especially when you go to wetlands. Living on an island, we have lots of yeah. wetlands within the, I guess, the inner workings of our city's mapping. And other islands are mostly wetland, like the island of Andres, which is a huge landmass. But within it, there's breaks and, and channels and creeks. And so you can take a ferry between islands or keys. Generalized walking in the Bahamas there's some domesticated animals, there are some farmers, but there's not, at least where I live, which is the capital, there's not a very wild element. So if you were to study a bit okay. about the Bahamas and how it was set up post-colonization, this island was set up as just like the trade central. So this was the place that had most of the roads and it has one of the nation's only two hospitals. So there's not a lot of wild elements okay, here, that's interesting. but there are protected spaces and national parks. And mm. that's where you maybe could see something that's more representative of the wild element. And I guess, like you said, it is more the marine, like you said, with a lot of your ocean, like coastal areas mm-hmm. and your your sharks being protected. I guess maybe the Bahamas, if it's more of a trade set, that's where a lot of the wild kind of exists then in Bahamas is the marine yeah, and shallow marine. Definitely. Side. So that is where a lot of our conservation efforts lie. There's not, for mm. instance... We all know of movements that want to save polar bears or want to save certain species of wildcats from going extinct. We don't have those animals. They're not common here unless they're in a controlled facility. So people could wander around this island and not be affected by nature unless it's like a stray dog or something like that. There's not going to be like a bear or a wolf or any animal of prey that's going to get you living here. But you do have tiger sharks. <laughs> I guess if you're going to be swimming at midnight, <laughs> you should not <laughs> bother the tiger sharks. <laughs> I had to pick you up because you're like, do you know what? You could walk around the Yeah, Bahamas, yeah, it's beautiful. Completely unaffected. But you do have tiger sharks, Neil. <laughs> we do have tiger sharks, yes. <laughs> I'm not going to let you forget that part. <laughs> um... So, okay, classic Ryan question is, what's your favourite animal to see or to work with in the Bahamas? Okay, so that's a great question. As a part of what I actually do, I work at a resort and I worked within the wildlife department for a bit. And I had an opportunity to be a part of something that was the first of its kind, which was a flamingo Mm. being hatched at that resort property. Mm. So the flamingos, they were incubated and hatched. and when it was time for them to be trained and to be taken care of, I was a part of that process for a little bit. So flamingos hold a special place for me. Like I said, they're the national bird of the Bahamas in terms of their flock lifestyle. I've come to study a lot about them. They're one of the greatest success stories Mm -hmm. in conservation with the Bahamas National Trust playing a big part in that on the island of Managua in the Bahamas. And so that was, I think, in the 1950s that our populations were declining because of hunting efforts and they started the Bahamas National Trust and the population has now bloomed to be I think 
maybe the second, if not the largest in the world. So that's a, oh, a wow. huge conservation success story. And the resort was very keen on making that story known. So I was very happy to be a part of the rearing of those young birds. So that that's my favorite animal to work with. Any zoo or any facility that I go to, I always look for the flamingos if they are there. They just always, they awaken something in me that reminds me of being younger. Because, you know, when you're in primary school, you learn the national symbols. Mm. And the flamingo is always the one that stands out. Yeah. It's a bird. It's pink. It's a very uh, peculiar looking bird. So um, it just represents a lot for me in terms of national heritage, also um, career origins. And like I said, it's it's a peculiar bird. And I, I think I'm a bit of a peculiar bird as well. <laughs> <laughs> You see yourself a lot in a flamingo. Yeah, I, I, my neck is much longer than this. <laughs> yeah, listeners can't see, but I am talking to a flamingo-shaped person. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really nice, though, because I've worked with... I don't actually know. I didn't directly work with flamingos. Uh, the zoo I worked in had flamingos towards the last couple of years. They had a new enclosure built for them. They're such... You said it there. They're such a unique-looking bird. They're one of those birds, you know, similar to like ostrich or penguin or something yeah. like that, but they're so... You could pick it out of a crowd very easily. And just... There's so much about them that you can just stare at, really, because it, the truth is, like you said, they're long leg, long neck, curved beak, and pink. So there's only really four characteristics... But it's so different. Yeah. And they, they move so funny at times with, you know, especially when they're in a the little flock and that round breeding season. There are one of those birds you could just stare at for ages because they're just so beautiful. And God, so lucky Absolutely. to have that as your national bird. I don't even know what England's national bird is. Do we even have a national bird? I don't think we do. I'm just going to assume pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> so um, funny thing about them, flamingos anyway, you mentioned their legs. Mm. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but when you think of flamingo's legs, there's this ball in the middle and people think that that's their knees. That's actually their ankles. They have a very long foot. But what, in the middle of their leg is their ankle? Yeah, so all of that thing that goes down to the webbed foot itself, that is technically their foot and that, that thing in the middle is their ankle. And their knees are actually way up under all that plumage. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's insane, isn't it? I just thought... That's insane. No, no. Also, why would I know that? But that's, yeah. that's a. So, that's they, they do sit. Actually. God, they've got huge feet. They've got huge feet. And then they sit. And so, when they sit, they kind of fold up like a stapler. And then they just sit. It's the strangest <laughs> thing to see a flamingo sitting down. Oh, because it bends the other way. Yeah. And then the long legs are just trailing behind it. That's the same as. No, that's not the same as an ostrich. Is that the same as an ostrich? No, ostrich is a kneecap, isn't it? I don't know. Now we're talking about birds, and I don't think either of us know. Well, I can tell you this it's the same as a table. Uh, yeah it's like how a table folds up and then the legs just kind of collapse yeah. onto itself yeah that's kind of how it is that's amazing oh they're such wonderful birds they're yeah. so cool and that's lovely to hear that their population has suddenly like massive since the 50s increased yeah again um in the bahamas is there like rare species in the bahamas or is there an animal that obviously there's that success story about the flamingos is there anything else that conservation efforts are being put into as a national uh, for an animal in the in the bahamas yeah if you are familiar with the Bahamas or Bahamian culture to any extent, one of the things that you know is that food culture is a big deal here. So one of the animals that mm. is being affected most heavily by just food culture and international demand as well is the queen conch. And if any of the listeners don't know what the conch is, it's a marine mollusk and it's used in mm. many national dishes here. But the way that they propagate is through this mass aggregation spawning event. So they kind of just release oh, the okay. gametes into the ocean and 
that's how it happens. But they need to get to a certain level of maturity for that to happen. And so because of national and even in some cases international demand, the fishermen aren't respecting the policy which states that the sizing of the of the conch should be within a certain margin just to kind of play on the probability that this animal will have already made it within its lifetime. And so it's just decimating the habitats. And we've seen in the Caribbean region, the queen conch go extinct in certain locations. It went extinct in, oh, wow. in Haiti. The populations have just gone berserk, just disappeared. Places like Bermuda, Aruba, uh, Costa Rica, even in the Floridas, it's, it's completely just washed away. And so now the Bahamas is in a very curious position because, yeah, we're the ones that have it. So people want it and they come here to get it, but also people are willing to buy it. And when you're supplying American markets, especially, that's way more than the small population mm. of the Bahamas, which is only 400,000. And we're talking about the U.S. market giving us most of the money. When I go to a restaurant and I order it, that's not really going to impact the economy as much as the U.S. buying out more than our population eats in a yeah. year. Wow, that's such a tricky one to deal with, isn't it? With the supply and the like, because you can understand the reason why someone's going to yeah, do it absolutely. as well. Like, do you know what I mean? It's such a such a tricky one to deal with when it's like this. But you know, um, a part of my platform as an activist, it makes me think about these things so differently. And the way that I think about it mm-hmm. now is okay. So the government, or more so private entities like national trusts and organizations that are centered around this conservation effort. They want us as citizens to take a more informed approach and to maybe buy less or maybe pose that the government incorporates some kind of closed season. But at the same time, our footprint in this matter is so minuscule compared to the total exports and, and regional factors that we have to take in. So um, it's a very tricky thing because it's one part economy and also one part heritage. Oh, God, there's so many angles. So when you learn like things like this, are so nuanced, isn't it? It's so complex. Yeah. You're like, like you said, like you can ask for the attitude change in the Bahamas, but it's like, yeah, but that's not the thing that's having the impact. And it's Yeah, because we don't eat it every day. Um, and it's also, like you said, it's a delicate issue as well, because like you said, it's people's heritage, it's yeah. culture, it's, it's part of this that you're trying to change. So it's, yeah, that's a real, real tricky one to deal with. Um, which actually, I guess this leads on to my next question, actually, because I... When I was writing this one down, I wasn't sure how to phrase it, but I think I'm safe to say that I don't think it's uncommon for people in countries in Europe, especially like the UK, to assume that wildlife in places like the Bahamas is fine and everything's doing great because, you know, it's almost like media, that's how it's sold to us. I mean, obviously, you've told us about an issue there with the Queen Kong. Is that the case? Is wildlife fine? Question mark? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Question mark. It's like... When you live in a place like the Bahamas that is just, how could I put this delicately? It's like the Brooke Shields of the Caribbean, you know? In the, in the 80s, Brooke mm. Shields, well, she was that girl. And everyone wanted a part of her career and everyone wanted to be a part of a success. And she was beautiful and she represented so much. And that's the Bahamas right now. It's beautiful. It covers well in interviews. I say it and people say, oh, <laughs> So that's what it's like. Living. That is an absolutely amazing <laughs> comparison. You know, so we're like. We're I did not know that Neil was going to say. Yeah, I did not know that you were going to say. <laughs> Do you know what, right? The Bahamas is a lot like Brooke Shields in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> what an absolutely amazing answer! So uh, that's what we're like here. But um, just as Brooke Shields, without personal problems that people don't know, the Bahamas is problems that go 
unnoticed in the grand scheme of the environmental mm. and climate movements. I can tell you a few of them, actually. We've been having problems with mm. invasive species. One of them yeah, that's a huge problem is lionfish. And that's because we, like I said, then lionfish. Yeah. And like I said, we don't have much predatory animals here besides the tiger sharks. Uh, but mm. um, the, the, there are no predators <laughs> for the lionfish. And so the lionfish, they have this very voracious appetite. And they, they disrupt yeah. a lot of the, the food chain here. And so their efforts by local fishermen and some nonprofits to push the agenda to capture the lionfish um, and to introduce it into the local cuisine culture. So that's one thing that is a bit more fun because you can have like tournaments where people go spare fishing or they can just see who gets the largest haul. So that's a bit of fun. But things that are a lot less fun are things like coral bleaching events that are happening mm. or um, just coral loss, biodiversity loss. I was a part of an initiative a couple of years ago that did this mass planting of mangroves just because of the environmental damage that was through uh, one part hurricanes and natural disasters, another part just human negligence, really, and poor construction habits. So those are issues that are present here, but they don't get huge international coverage, I think, just because of, of the glamorized image of the Bahamas that people see. You know, people want to see more beaches, so who the hell cares if mangroves are gone from the coastline? Well, people like us care who live in this environment and when hurricanes come and they are super strong and they're getting stronger every year now, that's mm-hmm. when these things are now being reconsidered. So it's kind of like we're watching this thing just be picked apart so people can ask us to put it back together. And, and that's that's one part of what makes this work so frustrating. That's funny you brought up the mangrove thing because I saw a video on Twitter just a couple of weeks ago that was, I think, at a science fair from a few years ago that just showed the importance of mangroves mm-hmm. of breaking up tidal erosion and stuff like that and it was just showing that you know in this model the waves go in and then some trees and it just the other side of the trees was dead calm water so that's that's funny that you brought that up because i i would i even i wouldn't have yeah. thought about that something being a thing so it's incredible the power that because i then started reading about it i was like oh my god mangroves are essential they're super essential and and they're, they're super resilient and strong and the other thing about mangroves is that they have those very long and branched prop roots and that acts as a nursery for many essential mm. species like young sharks or turtles, yeah. crustaceans and fish, of course. So the mangroves play a huge part in preserving a lot of what it is that makes the Bahamas an amazing place to exist. And I'll tell you another story, actually. There was this, mm. I guess, small family. And during Hurricane Dorian, which was just a huge environmental disaster in itself, they were able to survive and seek refuge in the mangroves itself because of exactly what you described. Wow. The effect of mangroves as being a buffering yeah. system. They were able to wait out that super mm. cataclysmic storm, which was Hurricane Dorian. That's incredible. See, that's a story that d- proves... Uh, well, if people can survive in mangroves during that, imagine mm-hmm. what wildlife could do from oh, that's incredible i didn't know that was i didn't know that wow what a powerful story that should be hitting the news i think it made the news like for one day and i, I just so happened to catch it that one day but that's what i'm telling you like that's yeah that, that's not the kind of story that makes waves in the bahamas for a very long time outside of hurricane season mm. i think that that in itself is an example of why we should preserve the coastlines and mm. invest in mangrove populations the same is true for coral reef beds 
they start as the first line of yeah. defense. So now if the coral is doing that job and then it gets to the mangroves, it's safe to say that the shoreline is, is standing a better chance of being upheld. And the other thing is, uh, to journey back to lionfish, I had no idea they could be so in- invasive, I guess maybe again through ignorance. You know, lionfish are, again, some, maybe something in the UK and Europe that we see as one of those beautiful tropical fish. Yeah, and they're poisonous. But then, yeah, they're dangerous. Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say. They're, they're beautiful, but they come with a warning. So, so, so that's why they don't, I guess they don't have predators. But they're, they're absolutely gorgeous. They're absolutely gorgeous creatures, and they taste really good too. So, I, I, I guess that's what that's what that's what keeps the market alive for something like that. I've never had it, but um, mm. people have told me that it's it's a very it's a very in demand meat because of its texture and, and the way it tastes. That that's why they they have this population boom because there's no real predators here besides people, and they already weren't a part of our culture. So. They weren't being consumed for a very long time until they became a problem for local fishermen and, of course, biodiversity here. That's, I guess this will lead me on to my next question as well, again, quite nicely, is I was going to ask you what kind of conservation methods are being used in the Bahamas because something that's kind of, I would say, maybe in really heavily in the last two years in the UK is rewilding and talking about you know bringing lost animals back into the UK ecosystems that we've had once and we're doing it a lot with beavers in the UK at the moment to create new wetlands Um, and then there's a lot of call for bringing back predators because very similar to the Bahamas the UK doesn't really have any predators and the predators we do have are being persecuted for x y and z reasons so is there ever an opportunity to bring back any predators for something like the lionfish to be able to control those populations? Okay, so a very controversial thing in the Bahamas is the protection of reptile species, just because people in general Mm. have views on snakes as being so sinister, but we don't have any venomous Mm. snakes in the Bahamas. Uh, uh, Well, the ones that people are concerned about most, I should say, are harmless. And that is the Bahamian boa constrictor. Okay. And so the boa constrictor is such a mm-hmm. massive snake. And as you can imagine, I mean, a massive reptile like that has a meal. It will lounge around for some bit. So people see those mm-hmm. in their yards and they immediately take whatever item and they, they kill them. That is one of the efforts that I know some local conservationists have been pushing just to kind of have an educational campaign regarding the treatment of these animals. If you see one, call mm-hmm. us. We'll come and remove it free of charge. And it's important because they control rodent populations here. So you don't want to have too many rats rolling around the place because that becomes a problem for health and sanitation. Another campaign was the campaign with only one C Legacy and Christina Mittermeier. And that campaign focused Mm -hmm. on calling for an end to the oil drilling that was recently started in the Bahamas. So I was a part of that campaign with C Legacy and only one. And I had put together a group of young activists, myself included, and we were just calling for the government to stop, well, not stop, but not grant the exploratory oil drilling. It still happened because the government kind of just passed the buck to the previous administration who said that, well, the previous, previous administration did it. And so it was like everyone just renewing this contract to our detriment, really. And so I was a part of that project, which called for it not to happen. It happened. They found some oil. And I think two days ago, they came back and announced that they're now going to abandon it because it wasn't enough oil for them to capitalize on it. And so I'm like, so there was this environmental disruption and now there's this huge, hideous eyesore in the middle of the ocean. 
and for what reason. So it's a small victory in the sense that the drilling isn't happening, but it's also just one of those things, like I said earlier, where they pick apart something just to see what's going to happen and they ignore the, the science and the, the importance of our environment. Yeah, because I was watching your videos on that on Instagram. So when did that, you said two days ago, they kind of... Yeah, they kind of announced that. Uh, no more. No more. They may, but they still have license to do more drilling because they have a contract. So they can easily find another location. But I mean, I would just rather them not, honestly. Yeah, it's... it's... Where do you start with talking to the government to try and get them to not do that as an activist point of view? When you sit down, you go, how, how do we start with it? The funny thing about the Bahamas is that we live, well, the island that I live on specifically is 21 miles long, which isn't very far. Oh, my God. It's a very small island. And so you have the advantage of running into politicians at the grocery store, for instance. <laughs> what a great uh, point. My, That's amazing. My MP. I could actually walk with this entire laptop setup I'm dealing with and walk to his constituency office. That's how close he is to me right now. I could walk and maintain this. If I'd known that, Neil, I would have got some very different questions set up. We can do it. I'm not opposed to it. (laughs) (laughs) I will just turn on my hotspot. Right, let's do a part two. I'll turn on my hotspot and I will walk (laughs) the streets in real time to my MP's office. Um, Oh my God, this is getting too tempting. (laughs) But the the thing about that is, is because there's a certain element of access that means that they in turn get super defensive when they are confronted. And so you you ask them Mm. the hard questions and they immediately want to deflect or they want to say that it was the previous administration or in some cases they would not speak to the media or speak to people who are calling them out on certain issues. And that's the hard part, because you think we live in a small enough society. Mm -hmm. Our entire country has just about 400,000 individuals living here. And that's not a lot of people to manage. You know, there are cities that have millions and millions of people. And I just think that we're being dealt a huge disservice in that regard. And I think that the part that's most hurtful is these are things that are going to take effect within my lifetime and within the lifetime of my kids. Mm. And it's like, I want them to wake up, them being the government, and, and to kind of get us out of this, this place where the Bahamas is a tourism-dependent nation. Tourism is definitely our number one industry here. But as we've seen with the pandemic, we've been left with next to nothing in terms of tourism. So now we just have to maintain mm. what we have. And our environment is not the thing to compromise with drilling. It's not the thing to compromise with deforestation of mangroves at this point. I think that it's hard to get in touch with the government because most of the things that bring us the big bucks, like we mentioned earlier with the conch exports, those are things that in the long mm. run will harm us. Oil drilling, conch exports, deforestation of mangroves to build mega resorts. They help the economy, but the environment's suffering. And that's why it's hard to break in with the government system and enact these kind of changes because they want to know, are you going to have 20,000 jobs to offer if I save the mangroves? And then I say, no. (laughs) (laughs) Touche, sir. You win Uh, this round. Got me there. Got me there. But that's it, isn't it? It's creating, it's 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 like making a smoothie. It's like you've got to put the economy and you've got to put the people and you've got to put the environment all in together uh-huh. to mix it so it's that healthy balance rather than going, you know, we need more than just money because without the environment, mate, you can't spend much. 
But the funny thing is that when, when guests come to the Bahamas and they want to enjoy the vacation, they always talk about the environment. They always talk about the beach and they always talk about how um, it's so beautiful. And then I'm like, but you're staying at a multi-million dollar mega resort with the largest casino in the Caribbean. They, they're selling you an image, but the, the down the coast where the mangroves would have definitely been needed, where someone doesn't maybe have the best housing mm. insurance for hurricane season, that's when that comes into effect. Not if the resort needs to like put in a claim for lost, uh, lost cabanas or something during the hurricane. Yeah, because this was my, one of my penultimate questions was about tourism. And I was going to ask you how to manage... Or how does the Bahamas manage responsible tourism, both from, you know, I guess, construction of new places point of view, but also from wildlife? Because there must be a hell of a lot of wildlife tourism, like you said about going to see nurse sharks. How is that kind of stuff managed to make sure it's, I'm always edgy with this word, but ethical? <laughs> wow, I can't believe you just said that. You're so edgy. <laughs> so Well, the reason why I say that is because I find the word ethical and moral, it depends whose ethics and whose morals we're talking about. Very true. Very true. So I'm going to bring up a very controversial topic since you used the word ethical. So there is an mm. island in the Bahamas called Exuma, and it has some keys and I don't quite know the origins, but those are where the, the world-famous swimming pigs exist. And so yes. um, locals have monetized those pigs by taking their private boats and offering charters to take guests to hang out with these pigs who have been long domesticated. And so they take them there for mm. a fee and they feed the pigs, they get photo ops, and that was how it started. And then actual tours became a thing with companies. And, and okay. so... Now it's this huge exploitation. And then you have guests coming over and giving the pigs beer and giving the pigs alcohol and yeah, doing all kinds of crazy things with the animals. So I think that's what you're talking about. And then you have individuals who Mm. operate tours to swim with nurse sharks or to do scuba experiences. Mm. So there's a market for it, definitely. And I think that a part of it is government legislation to like a broad sense, Mm. but it it comes down to companies and and their best practices, honestly speaking, because tour operators, for instance, who are just freelancing it and taking people to get a quick buck, they have less of a vested interest in in the survival of the actual tourism market as opposed to their their immediate needs. And that's fine. They have to survive and they have to make a living. But absolutely when you have when you have guests coming and they they poison the animals with alcohol or, or give them things that will make them sick. I think that's where we need to have an authority figure come in and say, you know what, we need to have this properly managed. If these animals are going to be a part of this experience, they need to be managed by some entity where they are treated fairly. They're given proper medications and diets and they have housing. Like those are the things that come into play when you talk about the tourism aspect, because at the end of the day, these are wild animals. They're not contracted Mm. workers. They don't benefit outside of like a a donut or like a bite of a burger. So it's tricky. The sharks don't belong to anyone. They belong to the ocean. The pigs just live on the island. And so it's hard for the government to get involved with things like that, I think. Yeah, it's 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 really tricky. And I think when you look at tourism, you know, around the world, but especially actually, I will say from where like, you know, Europe or America point of view of where people have this idea of something and they get it in their head and there's this real privilege of, you know, I'm going to go and do it. I'm going to go do it, absolutely. And all these kind of thoughts of the how, the what, the why kind of fade out because we get 
captivated on this, but I'm going to go and do that. Yeah. And people just go and do it without thinking. And I understand it from a point of there's an excitement, it's something new, but then it's like, where did that go wrong? Where did we... I always find it hard because I've been caught up. You know, there's some tourism things I've done when I was traveling 10, 12 years ago, like ridden elephants and stuff that I look back now and go, right? gross, why the hell did I do that? Right. And I didn't like, I didn't think about it at the time because I was, I was younger, I was 19. I, I didn't really, hadn't looked into it properly. But now I grow up and I see people my age or older still doing it. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know, I think a huge part of that is also you come to a country and you, and you see the locals and they're promoting an activity and you kind of, like I mentioned mm. about the Bahamas, you think, oh, this has to be okay, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. this has to be fine. They've been doing this however mm. long. And that's a part of it that I think affects places like the Bahamas, like the Philippines, like the Maldives, is that when individuals mm. come there, you want them to live their best lives because that keeps the money coming in. So I think yeah. when, when you as a visitor go somewhere, let's say you go somewhere in, in Kenya and, and they have mm. they have these opportunities to take photos with, with lions or something. And you're just like, I'm in Africa. I cannot turn down this opportunity. And the people are like, you're in Africa. You can't turn down this opportunity because they want to sell that service to you. Of course. Yeah. So it makes you think it has to be OK. It's fair trade. Yeah, it's that spiral, isn't it? Is that if if both sides are going, it must be all right. It's all right. Come on, it's like that temptation and that. Oh, well, that's, yeah, it's a, it's a spiral and, that right. starts going downhill. And then the, the poor elephants, like, <laughs> it's like, I <laughs> and I know, no, guys, no, this is not please. all right. This... Guys, can no one hear me? <laughs> I'm the elephant in the room. I'm the literal elephant I, in the room. <laughs> yeah, I will not forget this. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, my, <laughs> my last question to you, Neil, is uh, this is an Into the Wild question. Everyone gets this, and it is a hard one to answer. Some people answer it very quick. Some people have a bit of time. Brooke Shields. Brooke... <laughs> no? Okay. Do you know what? Yeah, I'm going to take that as your answer. <laughs> Because one day I'm going to do a montage of answers and I can't wait for it to just become a Brook Shields just for the new. I am a legend. My question is if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, what would it be? Oh, lovely. My biggest piece of advice would be to take care of the planet because the planet will always take care of you. Oh, that's so nice. And we've spoken about that on the show with mangroves. Yeah. Like I said, the mangroves, it's like, it, it just yeah. all comes full circle. Mangroves, coral reef populations, those things, the planet literally could save your life. Right, that's a lovely phrase. Maybe that's what we'll call the, call the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call that. Let's call it that. Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and, and get to meet you and, and have this chat. And well done, mate, for all the work you're doing. It's, it's incredible. And I'm so... I was so happy to be put in touch with you and, and get to see the kind of stuff you're up to. So absolute pleasure having you on the show. And I hope the rest of the year in the Bahamas is kind to you and everyone that, that lives there. And I hope the pandemic clears up very soon for you all. Thank you so much, Ryan. This has been an absolute joy to do. This has been, I think, the funniest interview I've ever done. But also <laughs> one of the most <laughs> one of the most informative in terms of mm. the amount of content that we were able to speak about in such a short amount of time. Thanks, man. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects Neil is working on, you can do so on Instagram at NatureBoyNeil. 
If you enjoyed the show and you're a fan of Into the Wild, you can also buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Into the Wild Pod. And as always, you can get in touch with myself at Into the Wild Pod at gmail.com or on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello, share some thoughts on an episode, or even suggest a future topic that we can talk about here at Into the Wild. But until next time, keep well, stay safe, and live the good life.